Welcome to the CA Agenda podcast, brought to you by ICAS. On this episode, I'm joined by Matt Halstead. Matt lives in Hampshire with his wife and daughter, previously a Samaritans volunteer. He loves an open and honest mental health chat, which led him to co-create the Sidekick Charity, because he believes mental health support should be accessible to all. He runs Noctis, a small consultancy offering commercial advisory services to non-profits and small businesses, and investigation work focusing on the issues faced by communities as a result of oil extraction in the Niger Delta, where he used to work. Matt is also a trustee of Catch-22, supporting people across the welfare cycle, and is currently undertaking a part-time PhD in quantum chemistry. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Indy. Very excited to chat. Likewise. So let's <laughs> right from the beginning. What, what, what first attracted you to the profession and more specifically the CA qualification? Yeah, I think I was, I mean, I was studying at university, the master's in chemistry and molecular physics. Um, frankly, at the time, I was like, I don't want to spend my life in a lab. The thoughts of doing a PhD at the time were kind of like, this is not, you know, the way I want my life to go. And frankly, as I've only ever spoken ever about science, I was like, what on earth am I going to do with my life? Like I was 21 and well, I think I was 20. I had no idea. And my, my, my stepmom actually works at EY. And she was like, oh, have you heard of their summer internship program? I was like, no, I've got no idea. And I, 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 I don't, I, at that time, I, I didn't know anything about finance or business. Like the idea of sharing or shares was like you share food. That's literally, I had no idea about what's going on. And she was like, well, you know, I'll, you know, I'll help you with the application in terms of, you know, you know, you know, actually uh, um, writing some of the, some of the questions um, and yeah, um, see if you get it. And I got in and um, at the end of it, you got given a job. And frankly, the decision of life was taken away from me. I didn't need to decide. I became a CA. And it's interesting now that I, I went through a, um, I, I, I was at EY for a year. And actually, I failed my audit paper twice and had to leave. But I made a conscious decision because back previously back then, I hadn't. I was like, I was on the conveyor belt. And I realized halfway through my, my exams, I was like, no, hold on. I actually really want to do this and made a conscious commitment to it. My, the, the, the department I was in at EY was focusing on insolvency and restructuring. So I went to a smaller insolvency firm, got them signed up with ICAS. I had, the, I had ICAS down, you know, uh, vetting the firm. I paid for all my exams and I got qualified in the end. And it took me maybe six months, nine months longer. But, and I must say, having been qualified, and I've had a little bit of a, 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 a kind of a, a, a higgledy-piggledy journey, um, it's the only thing that has bring, brought me actually paid work. That's the reality. It's the only thing that has opened doors for me. There seems to be this very scary trust that if you say I'm an ICAS or I'm a chartered accountant, people are like, oh, you must be brilliant. You must be good. It's amazing. I didn't even experience that. Uh, I'm not sure if, if you've experienced that with you, but it seems like sometimes if you say you're a chartered accountant, not necessarily doors just open, but people kind of get a sense of this credibility and trust. You've actually been through some training. And I can tell you, having failed many an exam, it's a hell of a training. <laughs> Definitely. I think there's always that recognition, right, in the industry and the and, and, and broader world, when you do tell people you're a chartered accountant, there's that there's that um, level of level of assurance in terms of your capability. Um, but you've had a you've had an absolutely interesting journey, even sort of starting out in your career. And the journey you've had in terms of the exams, and you know they're they're not easy exams at all. And even hardest like, things I've ever done. <laughs> likewise, but even now you're, you're you're doing a PhD in quantum chemistry. 
I can safely say that chartered accountancy is harder than quantum chemistry. Well, there is there is, um, <laughs> there is you know, CA qualification difficult, much much harder than the PhD in quantum chemistry. Uh, I think I think the thing for me, like the the PhD side of thing, it's it's what, how my mind has always been attuned. It's um, I love it. Um, the, the reason I do it now is was basically I was I felt like this is related to mental health. I had a an imbalance in my life, and one of those imbalances was 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 bringing the science back. And it's a strange habit to have at the age of, well, now I'm 35, but starting at kind of late 20s to want to bring some science back into your life. But for me, that was like a recipe. It was okay. If I brought that back, that would enable me to kind of, you know, light up that side of my brain, which I, I want to. And when I do light up the sides of my brain, which I know are, are, um, are kind of firing and creative, it leads me to being happier and more positive. So it was actually a, a decision a lot you know, based on my mental health at the same time. And, and, and I love it. I must say, having, having had a child two years ago, actually doing a part-time PhD on the side of work is, 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 is challenging, but I do manage to squeeze it in and, and I'm enjoying it. That's fantastic. I commend you for juggling so many commitments. Uh, I, can, I can appreciate it's not easy, but um, a huge respect for being able to do that. And so, you know, moving on slightly in terms of your career, you, you've held a number of you know, roles at various organizations, including the big four, insolvency, as you mentioned, property companies. And then in 2011, you made the conscious decision to move into the not-for-profit sector. So what, what drove this transition from the private sector? I think at the time it was, I think, I suppose it was an existential crisis. I was, you know, I'd, I'd been on a conveyor belt of charter candidacy. I'd qualified and I was kind of like, what? Well, what do I actually want to do with it? Like, like, do I see myself, you know, doing deals and transactions and, and insolvencies for the rest of my life? And, and the reality was no. And I'd always had a passion for, for I suppose it's, it's cliche, but trying to do something that I've, I would deem as helpful and worthwhile to myself. Not saying that transactions aren't worthwhile, very worthwhile. But, um, and I felt that, okay, let's investigate that in the, in the charity space. But before that, a week after qualifying, I quit and joined a rock band. Um, and it turns out that you can't, well, one, the life of a rock and roll drummer, a bad rock and roll drummer, doesn't lead to good mental health. Turns out, and I could have learned that lesson from looking at the other mental, uh, the mental health of other drummers who are either with us or are not with us at the moment. Um, but then I got had this opportunity of, Going, you know, a, a friend of mine who was playing sport with, he was running a organization based in Nigeria, the Niger Delta, where all the oil is extracted. And he basically came to me and he was like, Matt, I'm pretty certain I have a black hole on our finances. You want to get into the charity space. You have a background in insolvency. Can you help? And that's basically how it started. And over the, over the period of four years, we turned the organization around. We registered it as a charity. Uh, we grew from a million turnover to four million turnover. We were taking contracts in from the U.S. State Department, um, um, uh, British government, foreign office. It was a by the end of it, we were you know we were running a fifty-person organization um, that had to be accountable to the taxpayers in various countries. It's a it was a complicated business, but at the same time, that period of fast growth took a took an impact. Um, I put my life and soul into that into that, that organization and at the end you know at the end I had to leave because I was I think I was struggling and but I think on the point of chartered accountancy I once we've turned the organization around I realized that I could use some of my 
charter council skills, financial skills, to understand some of the issues going on in the Delta. And my specialist topic is around oil theft in Nigeria and looking at the patronage networks, um, how money is actually spent, how the grey the, the gray money is actually transferred and spent. Um, and then at the same time, how the stolen oil gets in and out of the country. Um, and it was my financial skills, basically it's cash flow modeling that enabled me to, to, to predict very clearly the, the, the supply chain of oil theft in Nigeria. Wow, it, it feels like you've really found the right mix between your technical uh, expertise and skills and also putting together your passion right and to, be able to work on, on, on a project like that so even though you know we call it a transition and we've we discussed there's a transition from the private sector to the not-for-profit sector yeah. we're very much using those skills around commercial acumen and the oh. technical that you've used a hundred percent and and this is what like i went into the charity sector to run a business like charities are businesses like you know unfortunately people still don't think of it like that like so though i'm a trustee of catch 22 like you said at the beginning i mean they've got a 50 million pound turnover like they're a business and and, 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 and and the catchphrase that they use to embody what they do is is heart of a charity mindset of a business. And that's that's what it's gotta be. If you wanna make these organizations, these charitable organizations sustainable, you've got to be financially savvy and you've got to have people with the skills to go in there. And frankly, as a CA, not many people will go into the small charity sector. They'll go in the big one, but not in the small one. So basics, basic supply and demand, I basically went where my skills were demanded and there was no supply. Couldn't agree with you more. I think there's always that perception that the not-for-profit sector is slightly different in some ways, and, and it is. However, the fundamentals in terms of as an organisation, how it yeah. runs and how it operates. Um, if you took the balance sheet and PNL of a it's the same. Charities, fundamentally the same. Some of the terminology is obviously different, yeah. and the accounting, accounting um, techniques and um, legislation is different. However, fundamentally the yeah. same. same and- thing. And actually, you know, having run charities, they're, they're harder than pr- running private businesses. You have audits, you're accountable to regulators. There's, it's, it's way more flexible running a small private business than it is a small charity. Like the onerous regulation, which I think is worthwhile because you are spending public money, is, is required. But you need the skill set in there. You can't, frankly, be, be a group of do-gooders with no skills. Yeah, that, that won't cut it. So, Matt, you then went on to co-found Sidekick. Could you tell us a little bit more about Sidekick and how your work in the not-for-profit sector influenced you in creating this venture? Yeah. Well, I, I think to, to, to answer your, your, your latter part of that question, realising that an, the idea of Sidekick and how to incorporate it in terms of its legal structure, whether it's going to be a private business or a charity or a community or, or social enterprise, what it is, it enabled me to distinguish between those very quickly. And as the idea of Sidekick emerged and our fundamentally our product emerged, which is our app, our podcast and our, and our guides, it made it very clear that the, that, that the charity charity sector or the legal legal uh, entity of that, that of a charity, a charitable organization was the right approach. And my experience within nonprofit made it easy, right? I knew exactly how to run them and I knew how to set them up. And it was, it was relatively straightforward, but right at the beginning, when you're designing an organization that has maybe a community impact, the selection of legal structures is, is frankly overwhelming. But, you know, going back to the CA qualification, you know, all the terminology and the lingo made, meant that I can, I could cut out very quickly what, what we didn't want and therefore decide what we did. 
and thank you for, for sharing some insights. So I guess there's a piece here around your, I guess, your entrepreneurial streak, right? And you just mentioned there, you were able to understand the language and navigate that to set up an upside kick. Um, for the benefit of our li- for our listeners um, today, can you tell us a bit more around what what's the services that Sidekick offers? Yeah, for sure. So, so Psychic, so, so you know, just as a brief history, like Psychic started when a friend of mine who's also a chartered accountant, uh, he's with ICAW. Um, um, he came to me and he was struggling really badly. Um, he he had a severe anxiety issue. Um, really affected his work life, his home life, his commuting. Um, and at the same time as, you know, he's quite similar to myself. We're quite, you know, we, we, we do several different projects and whilst being a chartered accountant, he was also an app developer and he is like, Matt, all I want is an app that sends me nudges that says, do you know what, mate, it's all going to be okay. That's what he wanted. And he, he, he you know, he, he, you know, as an app and tech lover himself, he downloaded the apps, for example, you know, some of the ones Headspace, Calm, um, 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 Cola, and realizing that actually what those apps weren't delivering what, what he needed. And I think where both, both him and I resonated was that our experience of our mental health and, I'm, you know, and, and feel free to jump in Indy, like it's, it's, one thing isn't gonna isn't gonna help you. There's no one size fits all solution to mental health. And I, that's true because we're, we're individual people, and therefore, why are we having solutions on the market where it just focuses on one area? I mean, I mean that's a, a structure of fund of how how you fundraise the startup, focusing on one specific niche. But our our opinion was that that doesn't, didn't work for mental health. So what we needed to do was to develop an an idea and for us it was an app we needed to create something which would aggregate a broad range of credible exercises into a library uh, that the user could go in and say okay i'm going to try journaling i'm going to try breathing exercises i'm going to try cbt and you build that and you then go okay right that those exercises i tried them cbt didn't work for me well that's fine if i was a cbt app then you're not my user and frankly, for someone who's, you know, who's experienced, and James who's experienced mental health, I, I don't want to feel like that. I don't want to feel like that, that product is not useful to me because I feel like I failed. So we wanted to create an environment where someone could go on, try lots of different things, find what works for them, put what works for them in, the tool, in their own toolkit. And then it's always in their pocket so that when, when the storms come, and they always do, there's always this, this mental health support in your pocket whenever you need it 24-7. And we realized very quickly this was never going to replace any kind of therapeutic intervention, so psychotherapy or, or, or therapy or whatever it is, psychiatry, whatever, or, you know, you know, talking. But the reality is that my experience was that despite all those conversations with, with people, with professionals, when you go home at night and let's say you, you were on your own and you close your bedroom door, you're alone, right? You're alone on your own. And that was, for me, some of the hardest parts. And what we wanted to do was to create something where someone will never feel alone and will always have that support. It's not, it's not a conversation. It's not there to replace a conversation. It's, it's there to fill the gaps between those conversations. Look, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and to answer your previous question around, you know, the range of, sort of services, I, I really feel that to support someone's mental well-being, that you've got to take a holistic approach. Right? Yeah, 100%. And that's what I really like about Sidekick because, 
you know, it gives, it gives a user and I guess people an opportunity to try different techniques. And I know for myself, what, what will work for one person may not work for another. I know what works for me may not work for someone else. And, and it, even, you know, recently myself realizing the value of journaling, whereas before I may have discredited it without having really thought about it or tried it myself. So it sounds as though Sidekick gives that opportunity for people as well to try a range of different um, techniques to try and support their well-being. Yeah. And also it's free. You know, I download some of these apps. They want me to pay 20 quid a month. And that this is the this is the thing why we decided going on the charity sector. Like this is a you know, to me we want to replicate the idea of the NHS. It's free at the point of service. You know, there's a massive barrier in mental health, one for waiting lists for actually going to actually speak to someone, and also the cost of it. It's a privilege to be able to speak to a therapist. Like it costs you about 75 quid, 100 quid an hour. I mean, there's a lot of people who, I mean, that's an enormous sum of money. So if we can provide something which people can download on their phone, it's about 45 megabytes. So, you know, even if they're on pay as you go, it's not going to cost them that much. They will have access to support. And the good thing is, and what we love about technology is that this is scalable. Like we can turn on every country in the world and everyone can have support for that. And we do, we you know, we've, we've got users in South Africa, in America. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's amazing for us to, to, to realise that actually some of the things that we've really tried to build as a result of our own mental health experiences are actually helping people. Because for me, James and I, our success was it's just, it's got to help me and James. And it does help us. But actually to hear that it's, it's helping more, more, more of us as a psychic community is amazing. And, and you know, frankly, you know, speaking about that community, you know, a, a year ago during lockdown, you know, this is the power of that, right, the idea of community and charity. We realized that this app was only going to get better if we could remove ourselves from it, right? And by removing ourselves from it, it meant that we had to give it to other people. So we created the charity, we created a nonprofit, we brought in a community of people. They were, a lot of people were on furlough, so they had time to develop it. And now we've got 10 amazing volunteers who build the app co-create the app, co-create the content, produce the podcast, uh, produce the guides, reach out to our partners, um, do all the design work, do all the music. They do everything. They are amazing. And it just goes to show me that actually there's a real power in community. And the fact is, I've never met any, 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 any member of the psychic community in person. Right, everything's been done digitally, and everyone is doing it is doing it unpaid for free because we're volunteers. And the fact that you can get professional people to do that is amazing. Wow, Matt, that is seriously impressive. And, and what I'm hearing there is, you know, your ability to take your technical skills to set up an organisation, use technology to scale that, and 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 then you know, bring in your passion and your interest in, in, around mental well-being, and you know, a huge, huge, huge amount of admiration and respect to both yourself and James. Uh, we won't hold the fact we won't hold the fact that he trained at ICAW, <laughs> <laughs> um, but a huge amount of respect. Um, and I know you've personally spoken before on the Side, Side, Sidekick Stories podcast about your own experience of mental health, um, which manifested with your relationship with food and exercise. So would you, would you be able to share a little bit more about that journey with us? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think it's something that I don't, I allude to on the podcast, I've become, and, and don't necessarily speak about as much, but I've become more comfortable speaking about is, is that I've had um, suicidal thoughts since I was 14. Um those thoughts are they're still with me every day um now they're not debilitating at all uh, but they still emerge and i think for people anyone, anyone listening who is in the professional services sector that do have suicidal thoughts you you are not alone 
I think that's something to think. Uh, and also, you you know, there's there's a lot of help out there for you to kind of support those. Those particular thoughts led, in order for me to control those thoughts, I ended up focusing very, very, um, fo- basically focusing on things I can tr- could control. And that was food for me. Food is a big one. And at the time, having played a lot of sport, food and sport were quite interrelated. So at the age of like 14, 15, I was keeping a food diary meticulously of what I ate, all the exercises I, I was doing. And it just got more and more that I suppose the more I felt uncomfortable in terms of like leaving school, going to uni, moving out in the big wide world, I those tendencies based on based on some quite negative thoughts were, you know, started to really dominate. And the the eating side of things, um, yeah, it's it's yeah. I still have issues now, and I might you know my wife will quite openly say I've got a very unhealthy relationship with food. It leads to a lot of you know feelings that I didn't really, I I, I wouldn't really want. Um, the exercise part of it, I ended up kind of pushing myself as far as I could to the limit. So both in terms of you know the typical weights, and I know Indy, you're a you're a you're a, you're a weights lover as well, and hopefully and hopefully you can relate to some of this stuff as well. Like you know you can you can get really bogged down in in the weights you're lifting or what you're eating or the goals you're trying to achieve i ended up doing a lot of power lifting but then at the same time i started to push myself in running ended up doing ultra marathons but i realized that the motivation that i was pushing myself to run for 13 14 hours at a time was purely negative it wasn't very helpful at all um and I realized very quickly that this, that, 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 that these things weren't, you know, you know, going to, um, uh, one, these things weren't going to solve themselves. And now it's taken me a while to kind of, I suppose, ease off. I always imagine it as like, you know, some claws in my back and like the exercise thing has started to subside. But the reality is that that's only subsided because I use exercise to control my eating or to control the outcome of my eating? Was I looking too big or too small or whatever it's going to be? The one one thing I found that really helped for me personally was uh, every Lent, I I give up something, you know what I mean? And and I touched upon when my wife was pregnant, she had gestational diabetes, which is a temporary form of diabetes whilst you're pregnant. And I said, okay, well, this Lent, I'll give up sugar. Can't be too hard. And at the time, I was like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll give up sugar for 40 days. And I lost a stone and a half in 40 days. And I hadn't realized how much, for example, sugar I was consuming. And even though I was the most well researched person in terms of diet, exercise, whatever, I, I, I got it all wrong and really realized that by taking control of, of, of my diet, but in a healthy way, so basically saying, Matt, stop eating the bloody cakes. Stop eating, you know, stop eating the sugary cereal in the morning. I'd realized I was actually feeding myself stuff which I didn't really need. And by getting that under control, it enabled me to rewire my thinking to say that actually I don't want to eat. Basically, I rewire my, my, my thinking quite extreme to say if I eat sugar, I will die. Very, very extreme. But it needed to be extreme for me to break the habit of looking at a whole cake and say, I, I must eat that now. Because that's what I was doing. And at the same time, I'd eat the whole cake. I'd feel horrendous with myself. And I'd be covering up all the mirrors in the house with towels because I couldn't bear the sight of myself. Like, and 
And I'd be interested to hear from, from your experience or from your kind of community's experience as well, being gym lover, that kind of thing. Do you see this going on a lot? No, Matt, th- and thank you for being, first off, thank you for being so transparent and honest, sharing, sharing that journey with us, because I know that takes a lot of, a lot of courage. Um, I, I can resonate with quite a lot of that because, you know, for my, I, I've always been interested in physical fitness and I've realized that I've used that as a tool to, to, to support and promote my well-being. And I've gone from, you know, competing in, in Thai boxing at a semi-pro level around the world to then getting into CrossFit, powerlifting yeah. and, and, and um, all of that industry and, and that environment as well. And I've seen some of the challenges that people have with food and with training and the pressure they put upon themselves. Especially in an environment, for example, if you're if you're competing professionally in, in, in boxing or Thai boxing, you're generally cutting weight, and that's not a healthy exercise to undergo. But something that people do very regularly and has become normalised. And and I've I've had to go through that approach of um, you know making sure that I have a healthy relationship with food and have a healthy relationship um, um, with my diet around my diet and not to get too caught up in the in the micro details but also then valuing I guess the, the benefits that comes from food and exercise which is really around discipline yeah around exercise yes. and, and, and managing your diet and food and the consistency and the resilience that comes along with that it's helped in other aspects of my life so I've tried to I've tried to double down on the positive but also be very honest and open with myself about addressing some of the some of the challenges so those people that would go on extreme diets or fasts which you know they have their place but also need to understand that it's not a sustainable solution and i think that that's that's what the physical fitness industry and the diet industry really needs to to look at i think in certain aspects and the sustainability of this and people's positive relationship with food and exercise yeah and i think as well i think if we look away away from that industry and look back into the kind of iCash professional service industry as well like a lot of those you know, there's a lot of events which you turn up to where there's food, um, drink. Uh, if, if you're on a deal, you'll order food in, that, you know, that the, the partner will order food in. And you know, that, that's seen as a nice thing to do. I found it a nightmare. Like, I found it very difficult. I couldn't say no because I didn't want to say no. My body was craving it. But the reality is, is that you'd, you'd eat whatever was, was provided. And yeah, fair enough. I should have chosen something healthy, but I didn't. But the fact is, is that in that particular environment, I did find it very difficult. And it, I found you can be, it can lead to quite a very unhealthy um, uh, kind of way of life in terms of, you know, very little sleep, not eating great. And if someone like, my, like myself, who maybe wasn't as resilient as I perhaps could have been, then it, it, it did make me really struggle. I can resonate with some of that as, as having worked in the corporate finance sector and the long hours yeah, and the, the late nights. But I guess, you know, I, I, I struggle with that too in terms of, you know, food choices, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, did, I tried my best to try and make sure it was healthy. But like you say, when you're, when you're working hard sometimes, um, you, you, see, you see food as an avenue, I guess, to treat yourself, right? And, yeah. and, and to feel better, the fact that you're at work at tw- midnight, like... <laughs> um, so I guess I guess I guess sort of delving further into that. Once you made the acknowledgement to yourself that you weren't doing well, what were the next steps for you in terms of looking for for help and support? Well, I suppose I, I suppose yeah, there, there was a, there was a point, and actually it did come to the point where is what, what is when I qualified. Um, I think I was kind of holding on to qualifying as in like I pushed so hard it, for frankly for me it was like an ultra marathon doing the chartered accountancy exams and I pushed as hard as I could and I finally passed my case study I think it was the third time in taking it 
and and then I pretty much had a quarter life crisis, and and you know, and and struggled, and but then at the same time, having realised that things weren't right up until that point, I I took the fact that I just completed a hard qualification. I was proud of that. And I said, okay, right, use that as a baseline. That chapter is done, uh, or the chapter in your life is done. Now's the time where you can design a life that works for you. And it's something that I realized was that, that you know, at that age, in your mid-20s, you do have the space and the time to design a life that works for you. Because, you know, you look at people around you, you look at people who are 30s, 35s, 40s, and you see what they're doing, and if you like what they're doing and you like that how they've structured their lives, great, carry on. If you don't, then it's time to change. And I think I had to be very strong and say, look, this is time to change. It sounds like very much you you were a bit of a pivot point and you decided yeah. to take control of that direction. And I you know what I, the other piece that I'm really glad you sort of touched on in, in terms of just your broader journey that you've been that you've been talking about is the fact that there's no one journey or path, right? And I know there's probably a lot of CAs listening to this and a lot of students who are studying for their qualification at the same time, just to hear your journey. And so, you know, moving on slightly, I was reading a, 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 reading the results of a survey carried out by YouGov for the mental health charity Mind. And I think some of the, the stats were really, really um, insightful in terms of the fact that, you know, one in five in the wider workforce said they had developed depression as a result of workplace stress, and a quarter had developed anxiety. And those are, you know, those are some significant statistics there. And behind those statistics are real people and real individuals having some of these challenges so in your opinion and using this sort of you know the fs industry or the broader finance example what do you think they could be doing to change for the better well you know and this might be a bit broad bosh but just be more human right like and i'm not saying that they're not human i've been out of the kind of the big four world and the fs for, for for a while but if there's one thing that i've learned from small businesses that you're treated like a family and i'm not talking about like a like a marketing campaign of we're one big happy family but you know families have ups and downs they have open spaces for conversations they talk talk you know it's not just about work i think that's what i real realized when i was um when i was in the city that there was a very distinct this is my work self then this is my home self and uh, yeah and yeah it like yeah it seems like you agree with that and you realize that hold on like it's that's exhausting for one You've got to put on these new characters every time you you enter a room. And now, actually, my, my view was just you know from the from 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 employees of these organisations, be your be the same person in every situation. Obviously, you know, cut the cursing or whatever it's going to be, and be polite, but be be the same person. And also, at the same time, from the top down, acknowledge that the people who are you are managing might not necessarily be wanting the same things as you, but you do have a responsibility to connect with them on a human level and make them feel welcome and valued um, as part of, you know, because frankly, and we all, you know, we all know it with these organisations, there are, you know, it, it, they are um, built as pyramids and the people that who are doing a lot of the grunt work, you know, they need to be taken care of. And, you know, and taking care of, it doesn't mean occasionally buying them a pizza. It's just, you know, can we, it's something that's free. Have a conversation, just check in with how they're doing, just connect with them as, as if they're human beings. Because outside of work, in my view, you know, everyone becomes equal again. I, I, I couldn't agree more, Matt, in terms of, I guess, you know, I, I, 
you sort of frame it under the topic of sort of psychological safety. You know, are you you know are you comfortable to have that open and supportive uh, discussions with your team? Do you have that environment? And I I've always asked myself that question in terms of any any workplace I'm going into to say, well, you know, does this place allow me to take ris- risks? Does it allow me to be my authentic self, or am I being forced to put on my best face? Um, and and being quite controlled in how I act, um, which takes a lot of energy and, and, and can impact people. So I think there's there's a lot to be said there for psychological safety um, in the workplace. Um, so finally, Matt, is there any additional mental wellbeing tips and resources that you could share with our listeners today? Yeah, well, I mean, please come to the Psychic Charity, psychicsidekick.org.uk. Um, we provide a whole host of, uh, of, 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 of organized information based on how you're feeling. You can download our app, uh, listen to our podcast, and you'll hear my, 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 my dulcet tones. Um, speaking to uh, people who are, who are, you know, who are who are suffering from mental ill health um, um, every day, and it's it's something that's really built, you know, brought a level of kind of you know humility to my to myself, and re- you know, especially around realizing that the breadth and depth of of mental ill health across society is it, it is huge. Um, I think for people who really are struggling, there is a lot of support out there for you. If you're really struggling, especially around suicidal thoughts, contact the Samaritans; they are brilliant. Um, Papyrus is another one. Um, I'm just trying to think. Uh, Crisis Text UK shout. There's a lot. There's basically there's a lot of support um, that you that that will give you that time that space to do that. Um, but um, yeah, and I, yeah, I, I just I, I just say yeah, keep talking, keep keep going, keep reaching out. And at the end of the day, if you, if if those things don't work for you speak to a friend, speak to a confidant, speak to a family member, like just keep talking because the thoughts that are going, going on inside your head aren't necessarily valid or true. And it's something that sometimes when it gets out, you know, gets out in the open and you can bounce some ideas off people, actually it makes a lot much more sense you feel better. Um, Matt, thank you for the wide ranging advice there and the link to those resources. We'll make sure we include some of those links um, in our podcast notes. We're coming up to time now and thank you once again, Matt, for your authenticity and your openness. I think this is one of the purposes of this podcast to allow that depth of dialogue. Um, if, if members or listeners wanted to reach out to you, how could they get in touch? Um, you can reach out to me at, or at Sidekick. So that's Matt, M-A-T-T, at sidekick.org.uk. Otherwise, connect me on LinkedIn. I'm under Matt Halstead or Matthew Halstead, whatever it is. Um, and yeah, I mean, feel free to reach out if anything uh, on this topic um, resonates with you. Um, I always love to have a chat, especially around mental health. So we'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for the time, Matt. Really appreciate it and look forward to catching up with you soon. Nice one. Thanks, Indy. Cheers.